0: Hey, Intelligent Squared listeners, producer Faye Adobita here. I just wanted to let you know about our first Intelligent Squared collection, Black History and Culture. We're revisiting some of our favourite live events and podcasts from the past 20 years, showcasing great creators and thinkers, including the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza, poet and activist Benjamin Zephaniah, and playwright, novelist, critic and broadcaster Bonnie Greer. We also delve into debates such as should the West pay reparations for slavery and hip-hop versus Shakespeare. Just search Intelligence Squared, Black History and Culture, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centres or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farajasat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Ottolenghi, and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry.
2: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, and I'd like to encourage you. To subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation. Perhaps never before, as the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs
0: £5 a month.
2: Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed.
0: So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And now to this week's episode. Thank you, Farah, and hello, podcast listeners. My name is Kemi,
2: and this week, in the wake of global Black Lives Matter protests, we have Leila Saad, the author of Me and White Supremacy. Leila Saad spoke to Emma Debiri to discuss the lasting impact of this moment and the role each of us has to play in creating a better future. It's a really interesting episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Emma Dabri, author, academic, and broadcaster, and I am joined today by the phenomenal Leila Saad, author of Me and White Supremacy. Hey, Emma. I'm so excited about having this opportunity to, to speak with you for the, for the next hour. There's so much yeah. that um, I want to cover.
1: I'm excited too. I know it's going to be a really great conversation.
2: So just to get things just to get things started I want to say congratulations on the huge huge success of your book how have how have you kind of responded to that because it's been phenomenal
1: yeah it's been a lot to to process and congratulations to you as well for the amazing success of your book and i know it's coming out in the us very very soon as well i think for for so many of us i mean our books have been in the world for a little while now and so it has been really i think none of us could have predicted that we would see the kind of interest the demand really like hunger truly for our books that we're seeing right now because up until just a few weeks ago this demand was really just from people who were already having these conversations right already open to having conversations around race racism you know black lives matter they were already in those conversations the kind of mainstream weren't really there yet and I felt like any time that I was doing interviews prior to kind of the period that we're in now, that it was a little bit of like educating people on why this is important, why this matters. Whereas now it's like we we know it matters. We want to have the conversations, which is a, a very sudden shift in in a very short space of time. So that's been it's been a lot to process, especially especially knowing why it's happening. I think that brings up really conflicting feelings for me. I know Rennie eder Edil- Edil- has spoken about this as well. Of course, we want people to read our books. We want people to be having these conversations. We want people to be doing the work, but it's hard to kind of celebrate when you know why it's happening, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's something that I've been trying to navigate as well that feels mm-hmm. um, very, um, a, a lot of things, um, discomfort definitely being 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 one of them what do you think um kind of accounts for so we know like this sudden surge kind of unprecedented surge in this work has kind of been a response or has been a response to the brutal killing of of george floyd and the protests that Kind of, that, that came out of that. But this is not the first time that a Black American has been killed in these circumstances. What do you think accounts for this, the level of interest in, in this moment?
1: I've really been asking myself that question because I don't know. You know, we've been always saying the same things. We haven't changed what we've been saying. I know that people can account, you know, will we'll say that 2020 is really overall a very unprecedented year because of you know covid the global pandemic the shutdown etc but i i don't know you know uh, because so many Black, like you said african american black americans have been the victims of police brutality police killings in fact i have you know the time hop app on my phone that shows you know what you posted or what you what picture you took this day so many years ago and I think it was yesterday or the day before, there was a picture that came up of two years ago that day, a young boy called Antoine Rose had been killed, right? Yeah. So this has been happening. And, and, and you know, people will often say, oh, because now we can see it, right? Now it's being videoed and we can see it. And I think, well, but we have been able to see it, though, on video for quite a while as well, right? If that's the argument. So I don't really know and I think that makes me not uncomfortable, but kind of almost feeling like if, if this is a kind of fluke or because we're in a pandemic, if that's what's happening, what happens when we're now allowed back outside, right? What happens when people are not forced to really have to think about these things because a sense of normalcy is returning? Does that mean this conversation returns to what it was before as well?
2: That's something I've thought about a lot as well. But what I've been kind of thinking around that is if in this period a wider a wider amount of people, a much larger amount of people, have actually engaged with these texts, have mm-hmm. read your book, have done that work, that is going to have to have... An impact you know this message is getting to a wider audience so even if there is something about this that has mm-hmm. the nature of a trend there will still be some value to the work that people have done in that period that Absolutely. hopefully will pr- contribute to some yeah. form of transformation I think it's really
1: about um Not only doing the book or reading the books, right, and and engaging with the vast array of texts and documentaries and podcasts and all manner of things that exist, not only engaging with them now, but keeping that commitment for the long term, because the reality is white supremacy stays in place because white privilege is very comfortable and human nature does not like discomfort, and so it, it it really is up to people who have that privilege to say we're willing to release that privilege so that we can actually create the world that we want to create. Because Black people, people of color, we're still going to keep doing the work regardless, right? Whether we're in a pandemic or we're not in a pandemic. It, but it really falls on people who have that privilege to say, are we going to keep doing the work regardless?
2: Yeah, yeah. Do you... Do you... Think that we are on the the threshold of something something new.
1: Yeah, I think that's undeniable. I think that's like, I don't think anyone can say we've seen what we're seeing right now um, in our lifetime. I think that's it's absolutely undeniable that we are in an unprecedented moment. Um, And we have to remember that this moment only exists because of the movements that have existed up until this time that have made this moment possible in the first place, and that we must continue the movement as well onwards. So... Yes, I absolutely honor the fact that we're experiencing something really kind of outside of our realm of what we've ever experienced before. But it's not an isolated thing that just happened as an accident. It's come because of so many sacrifices that people have made that, that you and I can even sit and have this conversation, right? Two black women in the way that we're having this conversation because of so much work sacrifice, commitment um, that so many good ancestors who came before us and, and living ancestors right now have put themselves on the line to do that work. And it's on us to continue that and make sure that this moment doesn't go to waste because we got too compliant because we started to see the beginnings of change, right? Like it's really about understanding just how powerful systems of oppression are they it, they're still in place for a reason and we've seen civil rights movements before they have been civil rights movements before and it always felt like we're on the cusp of something and now nothing can ever go back to normal but then it evolves and becomes something else right and so we have to make we have to make sure it doesn't evolve and become something else we have to make sure that we actually do create a, a new world. And, and, I, and I will keep re- reiterating that while people such as myself and yourself can bring our gifts and our, and our work into the world to help facilitate that, we actually don't have the power to, to do that. Those who have the power who benefit from this from these systems are the only ones who have that power.
2: And I think also um, when we think about structural and institutional change, sometimes people can feel overwhelmed and feel like, oh well, what can, what can I do? I do. Oh, oh, I can't my. do anything actually. Right, so.
1: right, <laughs> <laughs> right. And systems work at multiple levels, right? Mm-hmm. And and people sit at various different. Uh, first of all, different identities, but also different like roles that they have in the world, right? A school is a system, and if you're a parent at the school, right, you can have a role in changing that system there in that school, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And then that school can be an example for other schools, yeah, right? So, so it, it's it, it's not it's it's not helpful to say I've got to change things up here. Because you don't have the power to do that. You have no influence there. You have no power there. But where you do, where you stand in your life, in the people who come into contact with you, what can you change there? And, And that really is, when I talk about being a good ancestor, it's really about, it's not about like become the next Nelson Mandela, right? Or the next whatever. Like each one of us has our path. Each one of us has our role to play, but it has to be exactly where we stand and not trying to be
2: somebody else. Yeah, yeah, I think that's such, a, such a, 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 valuable, um, a, a, a valuable lesson. I'd like to ask you about the whole concept of being a good ancestor because I find mm. that very appealing and I love that spiritual dimension to the work. Yeah. So could you yeah expand a little bit more on what that, what that means and why it's central to your work?
1: It's very it's very it became very central to my work early on in my work because this work is very hard. As you know, <laughs> right? Having conversations with white people about racism is one of the most it can be one of the most first of all physically like just for your body bodily destroying experiences, right? Um psychologically destructive. And then spiritual, spiritually destructive, right? Your mi- mind, right? Like mentally destructive. Yeah. So it... it <laughs> I and feel this
2: overwhelmed. Is, <laughs> just, right. Yeah. I was thinking about it and yeah. we're
1: not even talking about... I'm not even talking about having conversations with people who are like, yeah, I hate black people, right? I'm not even talking about those conversations. I'm talking about... The conversations with people who are like, "But I don't even see color," and my, one. right, my my friends are black or whatever, right? And those conversations are destructive to us on on multiple levels. And within the first few months of me starting this work, I almost burned out very very quickly because I didn't I didn't first of all I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't know how to have really good boundaries and center myself. But I also was emptying myself to the world without refilling myself. And so this idea of becoming a good ancestor and just the spiritual aspect of this work for me becomes became this infinite well where I refill myself because I quickly realized, and this was very heartbreaking in the beginning, and it felt like I was in a nightmare. I, I realized very quickly the only way for, and it's just like we were saying about our books being selling out right now, The only reason, the only way that mass numbers of white people will learn is if black and brown people are hurting or dying, right? It doesn't just come from, I tell you, this is, you know, I tell white people, you know, this is something that you should care about. Often they don't care about it uh, unless black and brown people have been harmed or have been killed. So that- Even then. (laughs) And even even then. But how do you you know it
2: was racist?
1: Right. Right, right. And what did what did they do? And maybe they had it coming and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Yes. Um, and so that realization for me really early on was this is this is not sustainable, because for all white people to then get on board with this, many black and brown people would have to be either die, or at least would have to martyr themselves in some way where they get to the end of their lives, and they're just drained right? In all those ways that we talked about. And so I had to, I was like, is this even worth it? <laughs> Basically, you know, is this even, this doesn't seem worth it. Um, but this idea of becoming becoming a good ancestor was the bigger thing that said, no, this is worth it, because you're living in this life now. And the people who will come after you, first of all, my children and my grandchildren and descendants, you know, God willing, will be, will inherit the world that comes after you're gone and what part did you play in building a world that really honors their humanity, right? And then this idea that we can actually change the world without buying into that dynamic. So so that dynamic of, I have to sacrifice myself for white people so that white people will get it. I don't do that. And that's part of, for me, of Spiritually honoring myself and honoring that I'm a whole human being, that I actually do have my humanity. You can't give it to me or take it away from me. And, and that good ancestorship means I have to be an example to other Black women, Black femmes, and Black people of: you get to be in the world whole, full within yourself, whether you choose to do anti-racism work or not, whether you choose to have these conversations or not. Be joyful, have pleasure, have peace, have ease. And so that, that is what really drives me is let, let me be, let me live my life and be how I want to be in the world that I'm working towards. I'm not going to wait for white people to get on board with this for me to live my humanity. Being a good ancestor is I'm going to be it now and I'll, I'll wait for you all to catch up. (laughs) But this
2: is, but this is how it is now. (laughs) I'm just I'm I'm loving it. I'm just loving it. <laughs> and what I also adore like about the about the concept is how it taps into indigenous um, African belief systems and the centrality yeah. of our ancestors in yeah. those um, in, in in our cultures in yeah. African cultures in African spirituality. Because often I feel that you know like a lot of the academic work around these subjects is representative of the eurocentric nature you know of its of its creation right drawing on our own african you know belief systems and um and traditions i think with that kind of ancestral reference and that ancestral generation is very very powerful I, i love it it's it's a huge part of who we are and i have this conversation often with my
1: friends who are black women as well that we for us as african people and people of the african diaspora it, family and community is is a key part of our culture we're not you know what like whiteness and 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 sort of european culture is and western culture is you're the individual the Lone Ranger, you know, it's about like self-actualization and you're not connected kind of to anyone else, right? You grow up and you go out into the world and you're your own person. And it's like, no, as I was saying to you before we hit record, my kids are at my parents' house now and they're there every day. I mean, when it's not when we're not in the pandemic, they're there every weekend instead of every day. <laughs> but to help me, because my parents want to support me in the work that I do and help make space for me, they're like, w- bring the kids over to us. We will support you. I couldn't do what I do without their support, right? And so I'm not just me carrying this work on my own, right? I'm not some sort of black savior, black mommy, ne- magical negress, like... Any of those things, I do not stand alone in this work. I stand with the um, blood ties of my family. I am who I am because of them, because of my parents, because of my ancestors, um, and because of and because of the tie between black people all over the world throughout time that this bond of of our melanin and our Africanness that you can you can talk to people from you know, in Europe, Latin America, the Middle East, you know, America, all black people living in very different cultures. And yet we get it. Like we get, there's things that we don't even need to say to each other to know that's just how we are because we are black people. Um, and so that bond for me is, is, is key because how do we create a world in which we want everyone to be free, but we're separate from each other. And that separateness, and this comes from that white supremacy and this capitalism, that it's all about the individual, is what is killing us.
2: Absolutely. And I think what you said about families is like so important. Even this ideal of the nuclear family You know, even within that, you're unrooted from grandparents often. It is just this very, like, lonely, unsupported, like, situation that's so different to the way of organizing society around extended family, around ancestors as well, being central Mm -hmm. to that, also being part of the family. Mm -hmm. I see it very strongly having my family from like different cultural Mm -hmm. backgrounds, you know? So yeah, it's, 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 it's so crucial. I wanted to pick up on the way we are, you know, disparate, the African diaspora is spread all over the world, but those, I'm always like so struck by the points of similarity and um, shared experience that will exist between Um, you know yourself and somebody that you meet that's like from Brazil or from right from the states and it's like obviously there are differences as well there there will be huge differences but those points of similarity that are shared are really something 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 that's remarkable Um, and I mean some of them are the result of all having experience of white supremacy they're not all a a, a lot of them are shared experiences of racism but a lot of them are also cultural resonances, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, I think that, it's I think both those beautiful. things.
1: Like you said, it's both those things. It's, it's the bond of globally around the world being connected by the, the painful experience of anti-blackness that you can be in China or in Latin America or in America and uh, North America, sorry, or here, you know, and we all know what, or in Africa, right? we all know what anti blackness is and how it manifests and what it feels like and it's um and it's and it's painful and there's nowhere as a black person that you can really um, travel, especially if you're a dark skinned black person, right so that added layer of colorism where you can really say, "I'm not going to experience it here," and at the same time, I think the link of like like I like I was saying about culturally African cultures, even if you are, even if you know if you are the you know descendant of enslaved Africans, like so much of that resiliency of 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 um in, of enslaved Africans' culture was kept underground, and it's been passed down right through generation to generation. I think that's part of so much of our resiliency and our beauty and our strength and I don't mean strength as in you know the stereotype of the strong right but that real like depth of strength um is something that you can't you can't break and I think that's why we still have it's always it's always black-led movements that are pushing people towards a a a better world and saying, we can't have this world, that it doesn't work for all of us. And we keep, we hold that line and we say, no, this isn't enough. This doesn't include everybody. It has to include everybody. Um, That is something that I have seen the the world over as well.
2: Mm -hmm. And it's the lessons um, from black organizing and black movements and black protests often that other groups learn from and use to, um, and use to organize for for their causes as well, you know? Right, right, right. right. Absolutely. So the, the kind of liberatory spirit that exists often amongst black people is a beacon for, for many others, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and when times are like really hard in this work, that's something that really keeps me, you know, like reminds me like, no, I know it's hard but you come from black people, you know, <laughs> there's something, so there's something that you have inherited in that, that makes you right for this work, that makes your peers right for this work, that even though it's hard, even though you essentially put a target on your back in many, many ways, um, there are so many who have come before us who also had that target on their back as well, but they, they stood for truth and they spoke truth to power and they demanded better. And, and that's what you come from.
2: On that note, I'm going to pause for a short break okay. and then we will return.
0: Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared plus our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much.
2: So in terms of the thinking about the the shared experiences of black people globally, but also mm. the points of the points of difference as well. Mm. I'm really interested in your background because it's pretty international, and you've referred yeah. to yourself as a third culture kid. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think I don't think I fit the definition of a third culture kid, but my background is very international as well. So there's an yeah. element of, of, of your story that I'm like I find very relatable, and you yeah. also. I've heard that your husband is Irish. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Which always
1: surprises
2: Irish people when I tell them. I'm like, my husband is Irish. You're like, really? I'm sure sure it does. Often when I speak, not so much to Irish people, like Irish people can tend to hear that my accent is Irish. But usually when I speak to other people, they're like, oh, where are you? of course but from my accent and they just cannot place it because even though i sound irish ireland is they're looking at me and ireland is just not occurring to them right right but ireland you know exactly right
1: (laughs) it's the same with my husband because when i i think when i say he's irish i think their first thought is he's white and i'm like no he's not white Yeah, yeah, yeah he's actually culturally the same as me but he grew up in ireland and he's an irish um citizen so my um My parents are from East Africa. My dad is from Kenya and my mom is from Zanzibar and they have, because of, because of Arab colonization of the Middle East, they have um, Arabic roots as well. So they also have Omani roots. Um, But my parents met in Wales where they had both traveled to study, which is really funny because in Africa their countries are right next to each other, but they actually met in Wales, um, in Cardiff, of all places. And there were students together there. And as you know, when, as you probably know, when immigrants, you know, from the same culture travel to a culture that's not their own, they tend to, you know, be with, like, spend time with people who are the same culture as them, speak the same language, eat the same kind of food, you know, understand one another. So they both, you know, spoke Swahili, both eat the same kind of food and just were, were together there. And so they met there, they, they married, they had me on their firstborn um, and my two younger brothers. And so I had a Welsh accent for the first, I think, um, at least, I think, 10, maybe 11, 12 years of my life, I had a Welsh accent. And it's really funny when I hear like, you know, videos of myself or tapes of myself when I was younger because i was so Welsh, <laughs> such a Welsh accent. But they met there. Like I said, we, I was born there, went to school there. And then when I was around nine, my parents were like, should we move back to Africa? My mom, I think, wanted to be close to her parents and sort of be back on that side of the world. And so we moved to Tanzania, which was where my grandparents were. And we lived there for about a year and a half. But, you know, it just didn't. I think my parents had lived away from there for so long that they, they now no longer felt a part of there I was pretty miserable there as well even though you know for the first time actually it was the first time that I got a sense of what it meant to be black and and muslim where you weren't the minority anymore so you know I'd grown up in in wales with my with my mom my dad worked at sea a lot so we didn't we he would be away for like 4 months at a time 6 months at a time and then home yeah. So she pretty much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she pretty much, my mom pretty much was both parents most of the time. Um, I had, uh, I think two or three uncles who lived in Wales. Um, but that was it. That was our family. When we moved to, um, Tanzania, we, we lived first with my grandmother and then in our own house. But suddenly I had like grandparents, aunts, cousins, you know, everybody. And it was the first time that I got a sense of, of that that I am connected to something because I don't see it in Wales. I'm going to predominantly white schools, uh, Catholic schools, and I'm Muslim. So I'm going to mass every day. You know, I'm going <laughs> to like, every week. Right? We're, talking about, we're doing grace every day at meals. I'm trying to explain to my parents that I'm a Christian. And they're like, no, you're Muslim, right? They're uh-huh. trying to like raise me. Um, but it, it, was, it was interesting. It was an interesting upbringing. But I didn't... I was so used to being sort of in a Eurocentric culture that that was, I found that very jarring as well. Um, it was very, very different. Now as a grown up, I'm like, I really appreciate that community kind of, you know, way of being. Um, but when I was young, I was like, this is too different to what I'm used to. Of course. Yeah, this like is so tropical. It's so, tropical. It's so yeah. sunny. It's, so, <laughs> it's very different. So we moved back to the UK and ended up moving to Swindon, and we lived in Swindon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of all
2: places, sunny we Swindon. Lived in
1: sunny Swindon <laughs> for five years, and it was it's really funny. I was recalling because you know, because I do this work, it's really taking my whole family on this journey of like remembering stuff that happened that we just wrote off and didn't realize it was racist. Yes, right. And so now my mom's like, "Oh my god!" Like I remember this, and I remember that. And so in Swindon, we lived in a very like. Suburban area, you know my parents had worked really hard to build a life for us. They'd come over from Africa, you know um my dad started as a cadet um worked his way up to captain right, and is very well respected in his industry, but you know sacrifices were made so that he could build that life for us. so we had this beautiful home in this very like you know suburban area, and our next door neighbors were white and we only just we only just talked about this the other day. They hated us. They never they never smiled at us. We would say hello, they would never say hello back. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't smile at us and I really just thought it was a them thing. Right? But my mom said, "No, I'm pretty much sure that they thought your dad was in jail because he wasn't home a lot. They couldn't understand why we had, you know, this big home next to their big home." this nice car next to their big car. So they they must have figured he was a drug dealer or a criminal and that's how we got all this money. And so that's why they never interacted with us. We never found out their names. Wow, never, next door. Yeah, next door. And it was, you know, a semi-detached. So they're our only neighbours. So there's you know, things that you remember and you're just like,
2: oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's really it's really remarkable like how, like in these white, environments your race yeah. just comes to define like every yeah. every kind of moment of your being that's why i had to leave ireland i had to just like not be ireland has changed a lot since i left there 's yeah. still a very white country but it is a there's there's a visible non-white minority yeah but when i left after school people started kind of moving there around the time i left actually <laughs> <was> <laughs> <laughs> what was going to happen? Um, but um, it was just, yeah, The I, I remember um, when I was 12 or 13, one of my um, school friends, one of the mums invited all of um, my group of friends to the house. I wasn't invited. Mm. <clears throat> and they were given a pep talk by the mum about how I was an unsuitable friend because there were cultural differences. I never identified what these were. But there were cultural differences that made certain, that made, that, um, that as a result of which there were certain behaviors that were appropriate for someone like me, but were not wow. appropriate for girls like them. And uh, of course, like some of my wow. friends like, gleefully relayed this, this, this story to me. But um, yeah, a whole, wow, a whole lifetime of those, of, of those, yeah. Kind of yeah. I was hearing you talk about the neighbors brought that particular one back <laughs> to the forefront.
1: Oh my gosh anyway so we we lived in swindon for for five years, and then my dad got a job out here in, in the middle East was offered a job out here and my parents had been thinking for a time about moving to this side of the world. My only remaining grandparent at that time was my uh, maternal grandmother who's actually she's the ancestor who comes to me in dreams a lot she's the one i'm most um like closely linked to. And she was still alive at the time, but she'd moved from Tanzania to Oman to live with um, her daughters who were there. And for her, they had better health care. She was getting older, she needed, you know, support. So my mom wanted to be on this side of the world to be closer to her. And they also were like, we want to live in a Muslim country. We want to live in a country where our faith is not the minority faith. But the plan was only kind of, let's just test it out. We'll we'll you know, he accepted a three-year contract, I think, at the time. And we'll do three years because Leila has got to come back to the UK for her degree after three years. So we'll just move back after that. And so three years came and they were like, we actually really, we want to just stay here. So you go back for your degree and we're going to be here. So I went back to the UK and um, studied law at Lancaster University and um, enjoyable. So I, so being a third culture kid and for definition for people, third culture kid is a, is a kid who's uh, born and, and has grown up in a culture that is not the culture of their parents. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was, already that before I moved to this side of the world. And then I moved here and everyone here was a third culture kid. Um, So now I was the norm and then, uh, and then I moved to the UK and now I'm not the norm anymore. And it was very jarring. And it was, um, it was a time in my life as it is for many people where you're kind of trying to understand who you are, what you want. And so all of this is to say I struggled with anxiety and depression for two and a half years out of my three years at university. And um, we didn't have words for it back then. Like we didn't know mental health, depression, anxiety. I just thought I was fundamentally broken, that there was something just wrong with me. And one of the um, ways in which, I th- and I think this is a function of white supremacy as well, is that in black culture, It's changing now, but we don't have those conversations around mental health. It's pull yourself together. What do you mean there's something wrong with you? You don't know what's wrong with you. And so I couldn't talk to my parents about it. I couldn't talk to really many people about it. Um, And so I moved, I finished my degree and moved back here. And at the end of my degree, I did share that with my parents. And they said, come back, rest, and figure out what you want to do next. And so my plan had been stay for a year, you know, heal and then come back to the UK and, and figure out my next steps. And I just never, I never went back. It just, it wasn't a place where I felt like I knew who I was. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I just didn't, I just felt like, I'm. I, and I often describe the UK as my home. That's not really my home, but is my home. That's so
2: relatable. Yeah. yeah I feel that. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I also love hearing you talk about, um, kind of your faith and your Muslim background as well, because my Nigerian family is actually, is, is Muslim. And I spent the first mm. few years of my life um, living in a house that my grandparents were in. And so I remember them, you know, like doing, like praying like five times a day. And I have all, yeah. that. but this is just in the very, after I moved back to Ireland, that culture, I was then removed, I was removed from that culture. Right. But my earliest and more, most formative memory my informative memories rather mm. are from a, a Muslim household and um, mm. I just like I, do, I, do, I don't I don't I don't practice or anything but I have a great like fondness you know for yeah it. I just yeah yeah talk about it it's, making me think I need to yeah
1: it's it's a huge part of my identity. And I think that the thing about Islam is because it's not this thing that you do on the side, it's something that's part of your everyday lived life. So I can't, I don't see myself as separate f- from it, or that it's something that I do on the side. And when it comes to doing the kind of work that I do, it's actually, it's the reason why I do the work that I do, because Islam is very much about justice. It's very much about everybody all of humanity is the same. Nobody is superior or inferior to anybody else. It's very much about, you know, this saying, like, if you save one person, it's as if you save the whole of humanity. And it keeps me centered in understanding this, like, you didn't originate this work, right? This isn't this isn't just you being this genius, right? Who's originated this work. This is something that you're given. Your task is to walk it out and I will support you and make sure that, you know, you're protected and make sure that you have everything you need to walk out this work. But it's this relationship. Um, and it keeps me humbled in it because as you know, right, we live in this like Instagram influencer world, right? Where people often get a, a lot of their feelings of self-worth from how many followers they have or who follows them or who they're connected to, et cetera. And that really is, I think my religion really protects me from buying into that because this isn't this, that's not why I'm doing the work that I do. There's a a very um, great spiritual grounding that informs why I do the work that I do and how I do the work that I do. So you don't
2: get lost in the source, as they say.
1: No. And, I, and for me, like, it's, it's really about as long as my family are proud of me, that's really all that matters. And that pride for them isn't about what I did, but it's about am I a, um, like an accurate representation of the people that they want to be in the world? That when they see me in the world, when my mom sees me, my dad, my husband, my children, that they say, yes, that's the woman that we know behind the scenes that she's not a separate different person than she
2: is with us you know yeah 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 yeah, yeah that authenticity oh that's beautiful yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> just, so, so lovely. I think your authenticity like really comes across from your social media even you know and that is not something that can be said about everyone you know so I think it's like thank it's you. very apparent very apparent thank you I think it's it's um
1: You know, when I began, you know, being seen more as a public figure, one of the fears that I had was, I know what happens when people build someone up and put them on a pedestal, there comes a point when they're like, why is she up there on that pedestal? Let's cut her down, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we do as human beings. We do that to one another. And so I resisted being in this work and being, you know, especially as an introvert, like being up, seen and highlighted in that way. Cause I'm like, Oh, with the climb comes the fall. And it's often a very nasty one. And especially in this time of like cancel culture and, and all of that, it, it's, we forget that we're dealing with human beings and not that you can't cancel someone's humanity. So I had to decide um, and make some really important decisions on if I'm going to do this work and, be as a, you know, public figure, that I don't lose myself, um, that when somebody tries to take me away from me, I'm like, you can't do that, because I know who I am, you know, and, and so because I build myself, and, I, and what that, what I build on is not reputation, it's it's character, right? Reputation is what other people think about you, but character is what do I, when I go to sleep at night, like, am I okay with me? You
2: know, <laughs> you know, the, the wisdom in these words, Layla. <laughs> I think it's, it's saved my life, you know, because mm-hmm.
1: we hear of so many people who are famous and miserable.
2: Yes. Yeah, and yeah. 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 you
1: know, you think, well, they have everything, yeah. right. They yeah. have everything. Why are they acting in these self-destructive ways or, what, you know, why, are they, why is that happening? And It's like, because they're not happy
2: inside. they their core. At their core. They the at their core not, everything the is external, outside world
1: everything cannot is. give us ourselves. Yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I, 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 I came to doing this work from, I remember, like I write um, in my book about like being a child and feeling like I had a compulsion to yeah. tell these stories. And yeah. I was like, I don't even know where it comes from yeah it's not from the immediate world to tell black stories where does this come from and I had this sense as a young child that it was somebody who had lived before me that I was related to mm. I didn't tell anyone that because I was already mm. heard, like odd enough <laughs> so that was not the the thing to to, to, yeah. to try and explain to anybody it was only when I went to university and did um studied African studies that yeah. I found out about um the belief in Yoruba culture, which is my paternal ancestry, but not just Yoruba culture, really like across African cultures of this idea of kind of ancestral spirits and um, transmigration of the soul, you know, kind of like ancestors speaking and kind of like living through you. And then I had a framework that actually made sense of something Mm. that I had believed in, from a young age, but not had that framework to understand.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, It's so important to have that kind of, Connection, so that you don't feel like you're weird, right? So that you don't, so that you're not like, where is this coming from? Does this make sense to any to anybody else? There's such uh, strength and healing in that because we need our vo- like the world needs our voices. It needs the very specific medicine that we have. It needs the very um, direct truth telling that we have. And uh, I'm seeing now, and I and I'm proud to belong to this global collective of black voices, often black women and black femmes, who are oh, just like defying this idea that we have to be palatable or comfortable for other people to, to be around, um, willing to speak the truth, but, but also being vulnerable, you know, being courageous. You know, opening our hearts up, being joyful, centering ourselves, really saying my healing matters. That I'm not going to help you all heal while I'm struggling. That like collective for me is is just is is so powerful, and I'm so inspired by by so many of the women. And I remember I got your book, which you so kindly sent me, and I so I'm I'm basically because so I'm you know starting locks right, and I had
2: decided.
1: I had to decide that any comments that I write about my lock journey, I have to close the comments because I because saw that. I yeah.
2: comments, And I was like, Oh, yeah. Okay. So you close I'm the comments. Completely
1: understandably yeah.
2: <laughs> because I get very
1: backhanded compliments. I get demands for people to explain like what all of these things are. And I get things like I, the other day someone said, Oh, I think it's, someone who was white said, I think it's really great that you're embracing your hair texture. And my oh. response to her was, <laughs> my response was, why would I not, why would I do anything but that? Mm-hmm. Why would I not embrace? What are you saying? Right? Yes, I think she realized, <laughs> I deleted the comment. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what I'm going to do now is every time I post about my hair is post about your book right alongside it. like. <laughs> Please, you. You, need to understand this is, <laughs> you need to understand, this is not just hair. This is, there's so much more to this conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But there
1: are so many women such as yourself who are doing this work exactly, like I said, where you stand with the calling that's coming through you um, to say what it is that you're here to say. And I get such pleasure and joy and strength from seeing that because it's important to know that we're not alone. And it's important to know that we are, um, yes, separated by distance physically, but so connected in so many other ways. And we need, we need to see each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's so, so important. And so, so, so powerful. And I've, I've really, I've actually really felt it in, in, in this moment. Um, these very charged, and in many, way drain, many ways, draining times. But I have felt that that network of um, people doing this work, you know, the kind of solidarity that that, that exists.
1: Right, because, because we're, many of us are, we have very white audiences. So you can kind of feel like I'm one Black woman, <laughs> and this audience has just come because they want to learn all about Blackness and Black Lives Matter and anti-racism. And it's important to remember, like, no, you're like, if you, if you feel that way, then you will get devoured very, very quickly, because whiteness is all consuming and just wants to take, take, take and doesn't know how to give. But it's like, no, I'm connected to other people who are walking this path too in their own way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, um, yeah, what is so like, transformational about this period in time is like the the, you were talking earlier about us not having the words um when you were studying and having um came back to the UK to study and not having the language of the words to express uh uh, some of the things that you were feeling and experiencing and you know me talking about these relationships from childhood and feeling like Mm. this is just happening to me and feeling like very, very isolated within that. Although the only thing that kind of was it that helps that isolation was I read a lot of specifically like black American, like literature. And that was like my, my refuge and my salvation. But beyond that, um, the realization that those, these kind of dynamics were happening to black people, you know, all over. Oh, yeah simultaneously yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. I think in many ways facilitated through social media those mm. connections started to like be drawn you know yeah, um, and those kind of like white people who were behaving in this way that was actually like really predictable and that lots of other white people were behaving in as well that there mm. is now you know I wonder how they feel knowing that this book exists that so that that other you know resources exist that name and identify right that behavior as part of white supremacist behavior like how do they yeah yeah
1: and you know I, I often say I often say I think any any black person honestly could have written this book they may not have been able to write it in the way that I have written it because I'm right? I'm me. And so I wrote it in the way that I wrote it. But what I mean is nothing that I've said in there. You, The reason that you are like underlining everything is because you know exactly what I'm talking about, because you have experienced all of those things. And I have yet to meet a Black person who's read my book and said, no, I don't relate. I never experienced any of this. I don't know what any of this feels like. Um, so, so these things exist. These dynamics exist. There is a, a playbook, right, of behaviors. And I think... Um, I think white people have been very ill-equipped to talk about race, their own race, right? Not about us. I think they're very equipped in talking about us, but they're not equipped in talking about themselves and what it means to be white.
2: What it means um, to be white, absolutely. And you, and you
1: see it. And one of the questions I have in the book is, what do you, what is your... I'm paraphrasing, but how do you feel when somebody says white people Mm -hmm. or when you have to say white people? And I often observe when I'm in conversations with white people and they they have to say white people, but they are just like there's a hesitation or they'll say Caucasian or they'll say anything else than to just say white people. And it's because they know how to say black person you know, Asian person. They know how to say all of those things, but they don't see themselves as a race. And I think that's very intentional uh, and in, very intentional and baked into white supremacy, because if you have to see yourself as white, then you also have to see what comes with whiteness, white history, um, not the one that you've been taught, but the real one. And you also have to see these tactics. So the white fragility, the, the tone policing, the superiority so so, so they're not um, accustomed to seeing that. And I know many white, white people read it and they're like, oh, this isn't, first of all, this isn't what I, this book isn't what I thought it was going to be. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> they don't realize it's, it's actually, it's called me and white supremacy because it's going to get real personal. It's about you and, and your behaviors. Um, and, and they don't, realize that we know exactly how they're going to act or how they act because we're on the receiving end of it all the time. You know, I have used terms in those books, you know, none of which I invented, you know, these are, these are words that you can Google and you can find them, you know, everywhere. Um, But the ability to name it, I think is very empowering for us so that we can say when we're on the receiving end of it, the reason why what you're doing right now feels crappy is because it's tone policing. And tone policing is this idea that you get to dictate how I speak because you believe because you're white, you know what is the best way for me to express myself. Mm-hmm. Right? So when we name it, we get to chip away at it and and, and, and shine a light on it and say, no, this is a, this is a form of supremacy. And I don't... I don't buy it, right? I'm not buying into it. But also empowering, I think, for white people and people who have white privilege to see it as well so that when they do it, now they are aware of it. And when they do it and they've identified, oh, I did this to Emma back in school, da, 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 right? Journal it out, right? (laughs) Like write it down. Remember these instances, recall those memories and go, oh, that was actually white supremacy in X, Y, Z ways, and now that I understand that, I can I not do that now in the future. Or I can catch myself when I'm doing it and stop myself when I'm doing it. But when you see it as the norm, like, isn't this how we're supposed to behave? You and don't the last person realizing. who pointed
2: it out is the person who the, who's got the problem because they've got who's the got chip the on the shoulder. Right. They've got the you chip know? on
1: the shoulder. They're playing the race card. Oh. Um, always <laughs> making a problem, right? They're just aggressive. Um, oh, yeah. All yeah. those stereotypes, which are also white supremacy in action as well. Um, so the gaslighting is really real. And so I'm really... This is, this is a, a happy side effect for me. It wasn't, it wasn't the intention when I was writing the book that it would give language to black and brown people to be able to say this. This is like, oh, cause I was like, you don't need to read this book. This book isn't for you. This is book is for them, right? <laughs> but it's actually been very helpful I, from what I have heard for black indigenous people of color to say, no, I, I need these words so that I can remember those things that happened to me and, and say, Oh no, I wasn't, I wasn't um, like over-exaggerating or it's not just all in my head. Um,
2: it's not just me. It's actually oh,
1: all whole of the culture.
2: Yeah. And that, those moments of recognition for me, when I read Franz Fanon, um, black skin, white masks in my first year mm. of university, and he, he, he identified even what it, what it does psychologically to the black subject, to be an object of spectacle. Yeah. So, right. for white people to be staring, and he's, there's a train passage where there's a, a white child to the mum, and the child is saying, Look, look at the Negro, look at the Negro. Right. So, it's, it's right. just look, look. But what? Right. And he talks about how the, the disintegration of kind of self that is like yeah. precipitated, facilitated by being like, you know, caught. And Deconstructed in, in the white in gaze, the white and like gaze that. exactly. Yeah. And that like, so, I'm not mad, that's that, right? And that's so, it.
1: that's that's so like, um, in in these posts where I'm posting about my hair, that objectification where I'm like, oh, like you only see me as a way for you to learn about yourself. Like, I'm posting about my hair as my self witnessing, self love journey, but for you, this is how can I learn about myself as a white person or how can i um i kind of like there's kind of like the the other side of the spectrum which is like the exotifying and the like overly like overly complimenting where it feels
2: very intrusive and and there's a feeling like the person sometimes i get this like the person almost wants to consume you yeah it's yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah and so taking back that self-control and saying this is a boundary for me like i will not shrink myself because i want to document myself mm-hmm. but i'm not going to give you access i'm not going to give you that white gaze yeah right yeah. And, and what's funny emma is that even though i close the comments i still get dms from people oh my god they just to- can't stop <laughs> <laughs>
2: they'll still dm me about my hair (laughs) because they talk every one of those people think somehow they're the exception you know and when you talk about white exceptionalism right and they're kind of like a good white person doing it with a reasonable question or reasonable comment
1: and, and thinking that again that this is for them that or that i need that that i need that validation or i need to be seen and affirmed by the white gaze and the black gaze for me is what this is about. My own mm-hmm. self gaze, even, not even a collective sort of black gaze. My own gaze of myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, is my um, liberation work. And saying, I know that you understand, you, I know that you have been led to believe that your gaze is the one that is life-giving, but actually it's taking my life away yeah. And my gaze, it's what
2: gives me life. And it, I don't, it's not necessary. That, re- that resonates like so much. Mm. I remember when I first went natural, I'd have sometimes like white men like commenting, you know, oh, there's nothing sexier than a black woman with an Afro. As though I was waiting Ooh. for that, as opposed <laughs> right. to not even wanting to hear it at all. Right, right. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you. Because I live or die by whether or not you think this right. is right. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so to wrap up, thank you so much for this conversation. It's really just been affirming and inspiring in so many ways. Is there anything, um, as we move forward into what could be a new Mm. moment, a new era, Mm. what are your hopes for the immediate and possibly longer term future?
1: yeah my hopes are for white people and people who have white privilege to really commit to this work for life and in fact not just for life but for multi-generations going forward that it's not just about you it's also about who are the young people in your life that you need to educate as well and get them started on this journey um I know that there's a, you know, we started talking at the beginning of this interview about like the books selling out and all of these things that are happening right now and the sense of urgency. And I understand there is, and there always has been urgency in this work, right? And we have always done this work from a sense of urgency, um, as, as black people. But at the same time, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's not a sprint, right? It's, it's a marathon. And I, what I don't want is people Go, going from apathy to urgency and then back to apathy again.
2: Mhm. Mhm.
1: And that, and cuz the apathy that comes after burning yourself out is 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 actually is actually so much more dangerous to me than the apathy that was before. Yes. Because because now you feel like but I did I bought the books. Oh. I I I marched, I protested, yeah, right?
2: Yeah. I I diversified my feed.
1: I divers I lost a few friendships, right? Mm-hmm. Because I stated my views. I did that. And we have this big moment now and now everyone knows black lives matter and can I just go back to the comfort? Yeah. Um, and so that's what I definitely don't want to see. So yes, this work has always been urgent, but be mindful of the way that you use your energy because we need you for the long haul and not just for the next few months. And then my hope and my um, affirmation for black people, indigenous people, people of color, brown people is for us to, to do our work, which is healing from internalized oppression and internalized anti-blackness and really living our life now with the, Um, understanding that we still live in a racist society, but that we affirm that they don't define who we are. We define who we are. We define who we are. So we live free now. We live joyful now, right? We live with peace now, despite the fact that the outer society hasn't caught up to the fact that black lives matter, all black lives matter right? They haven't yet caught up. They will catch up, but we have to live it in the meantime, our truth. Our yeah, truth We now live the future now.
2: We live the future now because white supremacy indoctrinated us too
1: into yeah, believing us, black lives don't matter.
2: We have all internalized white supremacy. All of us. It just plays out differently. Right. So depending what ways on your do we, identity.
1: Right. And, and what ways do we, do we affirm black lives don't matter? We affirm it when we don't take care of our mental health. Mm-hmm. We affirm it We affirm it when we believe we have to keep fighting even at the detriment of our relationships and our peace and our joy, right? Like rest, (laughs) laugh, dance, be free, right? That's our work to do. We can't wait for them to give it to us. We have to to give it to ourselves.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. I think that's a, a really beautiful and profound point to finish on thank you Emma my huge pleasure I enjoyed this immensely so thank you for your (laughs) generosity of time I know you're incredibly busy (laughs) it was a pleasure
1: thank you thank you so much okay